Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 20, All My Wishes in the Dust. Imagine the street in Washington, D.C. on the night of April 15, 1848. There are no street lights beyond Pennsylvania Avenue, and you mostly have to rely on the light of a waxing moon to find your way. Imagine you're walking the streets with your spouse nearby, or your child clutching your hand. And imagine you're a whisper or a wrong turn away from being separated from them forever. This was the desperate situation that 76 men, women, and children faced as they walked toward a wharf on the Potomac River that Saturday evening. Their destination was a schooner named the Pearl, hired by a group of abolitionists that included Daniel Bell, an underground railroad conductor trying to bring his wife and children out of slavery. As Sidney Blumenthal writes, quote, The fugitives were the elite of Washington's black community, almost all educated, light-skinned, and many related to free blacks. Some, in fact, were free blacks that felt their status was in jeopardy, always in danger of being kidnapped and sold into slavery. One of the escapees, Ellen Stewart, was bound to former First Lady Dolly Madison, who sometimes paid her debts by selling those she held against their will. The organizers knew that liberating people like Stewart would embarrass the upper crust of white Washington society and make a major statement about the injustice of slavery. The Pearl was captained by Daniel Drayton, a white man who helped a black woman and her children escape north the previous year. Drayton planned to take the ship to New Jersey, but adverse winds fatally slowed them down. Meanwhile, word of the escape soon spread through the white community. A posse of 30 men hired a steamer and overtook the Pearl, capturing the crew and the men and women on board. They forced them off the ship and marched the captives through the city as a howling mob surrounded them. One slave trader rushed the procession with a knife, screaming, quote, Damn the law! I have three Negroes, and I will give them all for one thrust at this damned scoundrel! The historian Manisha Sinha takes up the narrative, quote, The simultaneous disappearance of so many slaves, many of whom were the property of Washington's political elite, caused great consternation. Slaves from the district were either whipped to extract information about the escape, or, like Thomas Duckett, whose family was on the Pearl, and Anthony Blow, who worked in the Navy Yard, sold. Blow escaped to Philadelphia six years later, but Duckett languished in Louisiana. Dolly Madison sold her errant slave Ellen Stewart to a Baltimore slave trader. But Stewart, like a few others, was purchased and freed by abolitionists. Bell managed to purchase his wife and youngest child, but lost his nine other children to slavery. Most of the enslaved people on the Pearl were sold into the Deep South to near certain death on a plantation. Captain Drayton was offered a $1,000 bribe to name his co-conspirators. He refused. After a trial, Drayton was sentenced to 20 years in prison. 
Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner secured his release in 1852, but prison broke Drayton's health and made it impossible for him to find work. In 1857, he died by suicide. The crimes committed against the Pearl captives outraged Joshua Giddings, a six-foot-two Ohio congressman known as the Lion of Ashtabula. Giddings was the first self-described abolitionist elected to Congress, and a man who faced slaveholder intimidation with stiff-backed courage. During a floor debate in 1846, a Georgia representative drew a gun on Giddings. Giddings roared, Come on! The people of Ohio don't send cowards here! On April 18th, Giddings, who had visited the Pearl captives in the local jail, submitted a resolution to the House that said the enslaved people there were not guilty of, quote, any impropriety other than an attempt to enjoy that liberty for which our fathers encountered toil, suffering, and death itself, and for which the people of many European governments are now struggling. For this, Giddings was later attacked by a mob and threatened with lynching by U.S. Senator Henry Foote of Mississippi. Abraham Lincoln was a friend of Giddings, who lived with him at Anna Spriggs' boarding house. It was known as the Abolition House. African Americans who worked for Spriggs were free blacks or enslaved people working to save money for freedom. They turned the hotel into a stop on the Underground Railroad, and the slave powers knew it. In January 1848, a slave trader burst into the house and seized a black waiter at Mrs. Spriggs, threw him in chains, and dragged him to prison, all in front of his wife. Lincoln, who may have witnessed the incident, backed Giddings' call for an investigation. He had always been anti-slavery, but Lincoln probably never experienced slavery as he did in Washington. Like other Northern Whigs, he was learning that slavery's future was tied into something he was very concerned about, the future of the Whig Party. Since the time of its founding, Washington had been a hub in the market for human beings. Lincoln could see signs of it everywhere. Enslaved people came from Virginia and Maryland, marched overland, and packed into ships docked in Alexandria, ships that took them to their deaths in South Carolina, Alabama, and Louisiana. Long after his time in Congress, Lincoln would recall, quote, a sort of Negro livery stable, where droves of Negroes were collected, temporarily kept, and finally taken to southern markets, precisely like droves of horses. These were prisons known as slave pens. In front of the Smithsonian, still under construction, a slave pen surrounded by 15-foot-high fences with posts on the outside to prevent escapes held men, women, and children in dark, suffocating buildings with heat, confinement, and human beings forced to do all their business within the walls, creating a ghastly odor. Paul Findlay quotes an English visitor describing a slave pen on 8th Street and B in 1835. Quote, At a small window above, which was unglazed and exposed alike to the heat of the summer and the cold of winter, so trying to the Constitution, two or three sable faces appeared looking out wistfully to while away the time and catch a refreshing breeze, the weather being exceptionally hot. In this wretched hovel, all colors except white 
both sexes and all ages are confined, exposed indiscriminately to the contamination which may be expected in such society and under such seclusion. While Washington remained a busy point of the slave trade, slavery within the District of Columbia had declined. By 1850, the number of free blacks in the city outnumbered the enslaved two to one. But like almost every other corner of the nation, these Americans were treated like aliens. Free blacks faced heavy taxes and punitive residency requirements, both aimed at making them leave. In an era where a laborer might make $300 a year, a free black man in Washington had to pay $50 for each member of his family to live in the city and put up a $1,000 bond to avoid capture. Few could afford to do so, and this became a pretext to kidnap free blacks and sell them into slavery. Some kidnappers didn't even bother with the pretext. Charles Dickens, who toured the United States in 1842, wrote, quote, Public opinion has made this law. It is declared that in Washington, in that city which takes its name from the father of American liberty, any justice of the peace may bind with fetters any Negro passing down the street and thrust him into jail. No offense on the black man's part is necessary. The justice says, I choose to think this man is a runaway, and locks him up. Public opinion empowers the man of law when this is done to advertise the Negro in the newspapers, warning his owner to come and claim him, or he will be sold to pay the jail fees. But, supposing he is a free black and has no owner, it may naturally be presumed that he is set at liberty. No. He is sold to recompense his jailer. This has been done again and again and again. While African Americans fought this cruel system, white Southern elites saw efforts to abolish slavery or the slave trade in the nation's capital as a personal rebuke, and feared abolition would make the District of Columbia a magnet for those escaping slavery. But many white Northerners were embarrassed by slavery in the capital, and Northern Whigs had woken to the power of anti-slavery ideas in the electorate. When Congress reconvened in late 1848, three separate bills were filed to abolish slavery or the slave trade in Washington. One, offered by Giddings, would have allowed residents of the district to vote on abolition, and notably would have allowed African-American men to cast ballots. Lincoln voted against all these measures. This was partly out of party loyalty. Sidney Blumenthal notes Giddings and Massachusetts Representative John Palfrey, who also filed an abolition bill, were former Whigs who had joined the Free Soil Party. But the bills also fell short of Lincoln's criteria for getting rid of slavery. He always believed the federal government could and should exclude human servitude from the places where it had jurisdiction. During his time in Congress, he voted at least five times to exclude slavery from the territories taken from Mexico. But as his 1837 anti-slavery protest showed, Lincoln believed the question of slavery should be submitted to voters and believed slaveholders should be compensated. None of the bills did that. One, sponsored by Daniel Gott of New York that would end the slave trade in the district, didn't provide a referendum for residents. Palfrey and Giddings' bills provided no compensation to slaveholders. Lincoln contemplated his own measure, 
something he hoped would satisfy the objections raised to previous attempts to end the crime in Washington. He met with local politicians, including the mayor of Washington, to get a sense of what might be acceptable to the authorities. In early January, he drafted a bill and read it to Giddings. Giddings gave it a qualified approval, writing in his diary that he thought Lincoln's proposal was, quote, as good a bill as we could get at this time. On January 10th, Lincoln announced his intention to substitute Gott's bill with his own proposal. Under Lincoln's plan, Congress would abolish the slave trade in the District of Columbia. It would forbid most enslaved people from being brought into the district and free all children born to slave mothers after January 1st, 1850. Those children would be held in apprenticeship for an undetermined number of years. Lincoln left that part of the bill blank, possibly as a negotiation tactic. To entice Southern votes, Lincoln's bill would require fugitive slaves reaching the District of Columbia to be returned to those who held them against their will. Slaveholders in Washington who freed enslaved men and women would receive full market value for the men, women, and children they held. All of this would be placed on a local referendum in Washington, with voting limited to white men. With just under 4,700 slaves in the district around this time, buying and freeing every slave in Washington would have cost somewhere between $1.8 and $4.7 million. This was not a burden for a government that had just racked up tens of millions of dollars in debt invading a smaller country. In fact, shortly after the war ended, President James Polk authorized American agents to offer Spain up to $100 million to purchase Cuba in order to extend slavery there. Lincoln told his colleagues that he had received the support of at least 15 leading citizens of the District of Columbia, who, he added, quote, desired that some proposition like this should pass. The floor suddenly erupted with cries of, Who are they? And give us their names! Lincoln ignored the cries, but instantly, his careful work collapsed. A bill aimed at giving something to everyone had infuriated everybody. Abolitionists understandably objected to rewarding people for the crime of slavery. But the loudest howls came from Southern members of Congress, slaveholders who claimed they were the real victims. One Maryland representative whined that Southern whites felt, quote, wounded and offended at the style of language so often indulged in by gentlemen on this floor, who treat the question as men of a single idea, denouncing the institution and those who live in its midst. A delegation of Southern congressmen visited the mayor of Washington and either pressured him to recant or told him what was in the bill and got the mayor to pull back. Whatever happened, the support Lincoln had, or thought he had, dried up the instant he made his intentions known. He never filed the legislation. Lincoln said years later, quote, Finding that I was abandoned by my former backers and having little personal influence, I dropped the matter knowing that it was useless to prosecute the business at that time. The slave trade in the District of Columbia was abolished in the Compromise of 1850, but the move was deceptive. Bringing enslaved people into the district for sale was forbidden, but slaveholders living in Washington could still bring human beings to the auction block. As Sinan notes, most of those selling human flesh simply took their men, women, and children to Alexandria, across the river in Virginia. Lincoln, 
would have to be in the White House before slavery and the slave trade were finally ended in Washington. Lincoln continued to fight slavery in his last few weeks as a congressman, joining a successful, albeit fleeting, effort to block its extension to California and New Mexico. But the final months of his term, and many months after, were spent answering letters from constituents seeking federal jobs in advance of Zachary Taylor's inauguration as President of the United States. A mechanic who thought Lincoln promised him a post office job wrote him a letter. So did people seeking postings in California or in the territory of Minnesota. To one man who sought a land office job, Lincoln wrote, quote, I have made no pledge, but if the matter falls into my hands, I shall, when the time comes, try to do right in view of all the lights before me. From today's perspective, office-seeking appears to have been nothing more than a corrupt and grubby fight for undistinguished positions in the bureaucracy. It was not an elevated part of democracy. But the spoil system was absolutely critical to the life of the Whigs and the Democrats, and federal jobs were nothing to sneeze at. Historian Michael Holt writes, quote, At a time when laborers made a dollar a day on the days they could find work, and when most skilled artisans' annual income averaged less than $600, government salaries seemed generous indeed. Government clerks in Washington earned $1,000 to $2,000 annually. Postmasterships in large cities paid $3,000, and even third- and fourth-class postmasters in small towns earned $1,000 a year. Patronage was how the parties proved their value to the voters. In turn, appointees were expected to get votes for their parties. U.S. Marshals, who got up to $15,000 a year, were expected to organize voters. Holt writes, quote, At government expense, a politician could build a grassroots organization unrivaled by anything an opponent could contrive. Even presidents were expected to keep their office doors open to entertain job requests. After dealing with a large number of office seekers on the morning of January 11, 1849, James Polk fumed in his diary, quote, They have no claims upon the country and no individual merit. I cannot exclude them from my office, though I hold them in very low repute, and indeed, I almost load them when I see them entering my door. Lincoln dealt with office seekers patiently, knowing the value of patronage. But what he could give out depended on the Taylor administration, and it was not at all clear to Whigs that the new president understood how to use his appointments. Zachary Taylor wanted to be that ever-elusive American ideal, the politician above politics who could blow past established hierarchies and entrenched interests with good old-fashioned common sense. But seeing that there was no appetite for a second George Washington, Taylor gradually drifted toward more orthodox Whig stance. Later, the new president showed grit and courage in standing up to fellow white Southerners who wanted to spread slavery into the newly acquired Mexican territories, and he coldly stared down anyone who whispered treason. When Southern members of Congress told Taylor that his efforts to stop slavery's expansion would lead to secession, the president snapped back that he would hang anyone captured in rebellion, with, quote, less reluctance than he hanged deserters and spies in Mexico. Taylor was the only one of the nine presidents between John Quincy Adams and Abraham Lincoln who neither connived with nor bent the knee 
to imperial white slaveholders. But in his first year in office, the newly elected president tried to rise above partisan politics and pursued a thoroughly self-defeating strategy. Many of Taylor's cabinet members wanted to abandon the Whigs and create a new organization, which they called the Taylor Party or the Taylor Republican Party, and Taylor gave them a free hand in appointments. In the South, hoping that generous concessions to the enemy would entice Democrats to support Taylor's preferred candidates, the president's men kept Democrats in key offices. This proved a disaster. Whigs who worked for Taylor's election felt betrayed. And Democrats, flabbergasted by their good fortune, cheerfully refused to return the president's favor. In Whig strongholds, the administration's patronage decisions exacerbated divisions within the party, further weakening the Whigs. In the 1849 elections, the Democrats routed them. Michael Holt sees the Taylor administration's patronage decisions as, quote, an unmitigated disaster that played a significant role in the party's ultimate destruction. Lincoln himself was alarmed. That summer, he wrote to Secretary of State John Clayton that the president's deference to the cabinet was giving him, quote, the unjust and ruinous character of being a mere man of straw. This must be arrested, or it will damn us all inevitably. In the meantime, he distributed what few plums he had. Lincoln's old friend Edward Baker had just been elected to a congressional seat centered on Galena and would be the only Illinois Whig in the incoming 31st Congress. Lincoln shared patronage details with Baker, and both men signed off on recommendations, keeping only jobs within their districts to themselves. The major prize for Illinois Whigs was the General Land Office in Washington. Lincoln called the job, quote, the only crumb of patronage which Illinois expects. This was not the most powerful office in the Capitol, but it had potential. Besides receiving $3,000 a year, three times the salary of the Illinois governor, the commissioner of the land office had a large voice in how the public lands were sold. Smart use of the office could create bonds that might allow the minority Whigs in Illinois to build their organization. As historian David Herbert Donald wrote, quote, He could do much to encourage the settlement of the West, and, since he controlled the sale of public lands to the state governments, he could promote the building of railroads and other internal improvements. Westerners thought it important to have the office filled by someone who knew the Western laws and understood the needs of Western farmers and railroad developers. Illinois Whigs saw in the appointment a way of strengthening their party. But Lincoln knew that an office with the potential to build the party could also spark jealousies and tear it apart. He kept his distance from the job. Writing in February to David Davis, his friend in Illinois, quote, When I remember that taking the office would be a final surrender of the law, and that every man in the state who wanted himself would be snarling at me about it, I shrink from it. Baker and Lincoln disagreed over who ought to get the appointment. Lincoln's choice was Cyrus Edwards, brother of Ninian Edwards, Lincoln's brother-in-law. Edwards had been a loyal party man in Illinois, often putting himself up as a sacrificial lamb in contests Whigs could not win. Baker had his own preference, Don Morrison, who many Whigs in Illinois regarded as corrupt. Instead of fighting over the appointment, Lincoln and Baker decided to see if one candidate or the other would drop out. Neither man budged. 
Lincoln and Baker also seem to have underestimated the growing power of northern Illinois. For years, central Illinois had been the state's Whig bastion, sending all of Illinois' Whig representatives to Congress. The inner clique of Whig activists in Springfield, who included Lincoln, were called the Junto by Democrats, and Lincoln and Baker seemed to consider themselves senior figures. But northern Illinois, where Chicago was booming thanks to new rail and canal connections, was pulling in a wave of New Englanders who favored the Whigs and would radically transform Illinois politics in the 1850s. Many northern Illinois Whigs resented Baker. He had cut short his first congressional term to fight in Mexico. When Baker returned to Illinois, he moved from Springfield to Galena, where he won the Whig nomination for Congress and then won the election with a majority of 1,000 votes. But Baker had bigfooted many Whigs in the district, including a young lawyer named Elihu Washburn. Washburn was a native of Maine, who worked hard for the local party in Galena and married into the city's elite. He wanted to go to Congress, but finished third at the convention that nominated Baker. Washburn began collaborating with other Northern Illinois Whigs to clip Baker's wings, and they quietly began a lobbying campaign to give the land office job to a Chicago attorney named Justin Butterfield. Butterfield was another New England native, an attorney who was witty, well-connected, and generally respected. William Herndon later wrote that Butterfield was, quote, shrewd, adroit, and gifted, with a knowledge of what politicians would call good management. During the War of 1812, while practicing law in New York, Butterfield tried to free a client detained without trial, which made him the target of fierce local criticism. Lincoln was fond of quoting Butterfield's explanation of why he supported the war with Mexico. Quote, I opposed one war. That was enough for me. I am now perpetually in favor of war, pestilence, and famine. He liked the quip, but Lincoln didn't like Butterfield's support for the war. More importantly, Butterfield had never supported Taylor. To Josiah Lucas, Lincoln wrote, quote, of the quite 100 Illinoisans, equally well-qualified, I do not know one with less claims to it. He fought for Mr. Clay against General Taylor to the bitter end, as I understand, and I do not believe I misunderstand. It will now mortify me deeply if General Taylor's administration shall trample all my wishes in the dust to gratify these men. But Butterfield racked up an impressive number of endorsements. Clay wrote him a letter of recommendation as did Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster, who was close to Secretary of the Interior Thomas Ewing, who supervised the General Land Office. Butterfield also got endorsements from the legislatures of Iowa, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and managed to get some people disappointed by Lincoln's efforts on their behalf to circulate petitions for his cause in Springfield. Butterfield's opponents had no recourse. Border State Whigs could ask Clay to speak on their behalf to the White House. New Englanders could turn to Webster. But the Whigs were weak in the Northwest, with no senator to argue their case. Ewing could decide patronage in that region on his own. In late May, Lincoln learned that he was the only person Ewing would consider outside of Butterfield. Realizing there was no other choice, Lincoln quickly mounted a letter-writing campaign, employing Mary to fill out some letters for him. He traveled back to Washington to make his case, bolstered, perhaps, by talk from friends that Taylor personally preferred him for the job. 
Lincoln tried to argue that Springfield, along the single Whig stronghold in the state, needed recognition, writing in his own notes, quote, Is the center nothing? The center which alone has ever given you a Whig representative? But right after arriving, Lincoln learned that the job had gone to Butterfield. Taylor decided that the central and southern parts of Illinois had gotten their share of patronage, and that northern Illinois, with the only Whig representative in the House, deserved the job. Ewing told Lincoln that he could have had the position if he had pushed for it earlier. This is probably true, but Lincoln was never really interested. He wrote Ewing in October that he objected to Butterfield because, quote, I believed it would be a matter of discouragement to our active, working friends here, and I opposed it for no other reason. I never did, in any true sense, want the job for myself. He was right that giving the office to someone who hadn't lifted a finger for Taylor wouldn't encourage future efforts for the president. But Lincoln couldn't overcome Butterfield's solid connections, particularly in light of the weakness of the Whigs in Illinois. The administration offered Lincoln a position in the Oregon Territory, which he promptly turned down. Taylor's men, perhaps fearful they had alienated their champion in Illinois, then offered to name Lincoln the governor of the Oregon Territory, a position that could allow Lincoln to become a U.S. senator when Oregon became a state. Lincoln thought about it, but finally declined. Mary opposed the move, and Oregon was a heavily Democratic territory which offered no long-term hopes to a Whig. Butterfield, meanwhile, would serve as commissioner of the General Land Office for about three years, steering land grants toward the Illinois Central Railroad, which did little to build the Whig Party, but made a fortune for U.S. Senator Stephen Douglas, a Democrat who was heavily invested in the business. In this confusion, Lincoln's congressional career ended. His time in Congress has sometimes been characterized as a failure, chiefly because he didn't go back. Historian Michael Burlingame disputes this, noting that the average congressional career in the mid-19th century lasted only three years. Lincoln saw early on he would not have a great deal of leverage in Congress and focused his efforts on the Taylor candidacy, which at least held out the hope of building the Whig Party through patronage. He remained a loyal Whig and corresponded with members of Taylor's cabinet through 1850. Even though the fight over the land office ended in tears, Lincoln got experience dealing with office seekers and saw the importance of patronage in cementing party ties. As president, he would not repeat Taylor's mistakes. And his consistent opposition to slavery in Congress would pay political dividends in the future. But Congressman Lincoln left no mark on Washington. In later years, Robert Winthrop, who served as House Speaker during Lincoln's term, struggled to remember anything about the one-term congressman. Those who did recalled Lincoln as something of a clown. Ben Perley Poor, a Washington journalist, remembered that Lincoln had, quote, an endless repertoire of jokes, adding, quote, It was refreshing to us correspondents, compelled as we were to listen to so much that was prosy and tedious, to hear this bright specimen of Western genius tell his inimitable stories, especially his reminiscences of the Black Hawk War. He made no mark as a legislator. Still, Lincoln had gotten as high as a Whig in his state could, and he knew it. He told a friend, quote, I will go home and resume my practice, at which I can make a living. And perhaps someday, 
the people may have use for me. Next time, we'll discuss Lincoln's return home and the rhythms of his domestic life with Mary. We'll also look at a series of tragic losses that cut his ties with the past and shaped his future.